We're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning and verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of His own inspired Word. You remember from the first four chapters of uh, this epistle that Paul had rebuked the church for divisions within it. Back in chapter 1 and verse 12, he put his finger on the problem when he said, uh, some of you say, I follow Paul, others I follow Apollos, others I follow Cephas or Peter, and still others I follow Christ. That the church had divided around the uh, personalities of their teachers, and there was a little sanctimonious group that stood above all that and said, we follow nobody, we follow Christ. But yet they still were giving way to that party spirit. Now, in chapter 6, Paul deals with an issue that is an outworking of those divisions. The members of the church were using secular courts to settle those differences that they had with each other. And I want you to notice four things. First of all, the problem exposed. Look at verse 1 and then verse 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And verse 6, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Corinth, you will remember, was the Southern California of uh, the ancient world. David Huzak has a book entitled Californian Crazies, and he refers to California as the Moosley State, that it's full of fruits, nuts, and flakes. Now, Corinth was the Moosley State of the ancient world. It was distinguished for its progressive and its cosmopolitan ideas. As a Greek city, its culture was dominated by philosophical, pagan, and promiscuous ideas. But there was also another great feature of ancient Greek culture that manifested itself in Corinth, and that was their love of litigation. The Greeks were famous or notorious for going to law. In fact, the law courts were one of the chief amusements of the day. People would flock to them following trials closely, discussing in the marketplace and in their homes the various merits of each piece of evidence that was presented. You only have to think of the trial of O.J. Simpson or uh, Oscar Pistorius to realize that lo that love of litigation still provides entertainment even today. However, in the ancient world, a greater number of people were personally involved in the trial. When a problem arose between two people, each side appointed uh, a private citizen and a neutral third person to try and sort it out. It was like a, a private arbitration. 
If there was no success, the case then was turned over to a court of 40, 40 jurors of 60-year-olds, interestingly enough. So a court of 40, 60-year-olds then would adjudicate on the case. And if they couldn't resolve it, it went to a jury trial that consisted, wait for it, of over a hundred and up to a thousand jurors. So you had this arbitration, uh, the initial stage, which was four or five. Then you had the court of 60-year-olds, which numbered 40 jurors, and then this final stage, which numbered up to a thousand jurors. So the whole legal process involved a lot more people, and the Greeks loved it. If they weren't asked to serve as an arbitrator or a juror, they would uh, go as a spectator, and crowds of thousands would attend such cases. One ancient writer rather sarcastically says that every Athenian considered himself to be a lawyer. So litigation then was a natural part of everyday life in Greek society. They would go to the first stage of arbitration at the drop of a hat, and as the case progressed, hundreds acted as jurors egged on by thousands of spectators for the most trivial of offenses. And that love of litigation was a feature of Corinthian life and culture. But what was happening in Corinth was that the church was using these courts to settle the differences that they had between them. Verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, of course, it's not wrong for a Christian to go to court to use law. We know that Paul used the legal system when he stood trial before Festus. You remember he appealed to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen. He appealed to the Supreme Court. It wasn't going to court that Paul is condemning in 1 Corinthians 6, but rather using the courts to settle internal church disputes. Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints. That uh, term unrighteous or unjust, as the authorized version has it, refers to the spiritual standing of the individual. Does he dare go before somebody who isn't justified, somebody who isn't a, a Christian? What Paul seems to be saying is this, how can you take spiritual matters before unspiritual people to sort them out? It's it's incongruous. It's outrageous, he says. Spiritual differences need to be settled and sorted by spiritual people. So you can imagine a difference arose between these various groups in Corinth, a theological or a moral difference. Some of the issues perhaps mentioned by Paul in this letter, the issue of discipline, of eating food, sacrifice to idols, or divorce and remarriage. And the Corinthians then were going down to the pagan courts into the marketplace to get a ruling on them. That's the problem he's exposing. It would be like a, a member of Balamina Baptist having a difference on the version that they use or on the issue of head covering or on the issue of the second coming and then going before a secular judge to ask for a ruling on that particular matter. That's the issue that was at stake, the problem Exposed. Secondly, the reasons explained. 
Why was it so wrong for Corinthians to engage in this behavior? Well, I think Paul gives three reasons. First of all, the testimony of the gospel. Look at verse 1 again. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? That word dare is a very strong word in the original and indicates something of the scandal that was associated with Christians settling their disputes before unbelievers. Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous? This is foolish. This is preposterous. This is wicked, he says. You find that again in verse 6. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. You see the, the scandal of the situation. By taking each other to court, they were washing their dirty laundry in public. They were simply fueling the contempt and the disdain that the world already feels towards the church. Now, that is such an important principle. Christians are to be discreet when it comes to disagreements with other Christians or even the feelings of other Christians. We are not to give the world ammunition against the church. The world loves to hear of splits and division and disagreements among God's people. And we as Christians are not to feed that love of the world. We are to be discreet. We are to be circumspect when it comes to our differences and indeed our failures. We are not, as Paul said to the Romans, to give the Gentiles reason to blaspheme. I remember a friend of mine, and he was going through a very hard time in his church, and I went to see him at his mother's house, and he was pouring out all his anger and frustration against the church members, this one particular individual to his mom. But his mom wasn't a Christian. You see how, how wrong that is? I remember a number of years ago, Herbie Carson, who was the pastor of Hammond Road Baptist in Bangor, and he uh, was a, a former assistant of Martin Lloyd-Jones, very able man, uh, and Harry U. Pritchard, the minister of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Ahokal, they were invited on the Sunday sequence to uh, discuss the issue of baptism along with a Catholic priest. And so Harry and Herbie got together in the toilets beforehand and worked out a strategy because the interviewer was trying to set these two men, evangelicals, against each other and then turn and say, well, here you have the uh, straightforward teaching of the Catholic Church of baptismal regeneration. And they worked out a strategy that they would emphasize the unity that they have, that they believe in justification by faith, that baptism follows a profession of faith, but the Presbyterians bring in that little bit, believers and their children. And I remember hearing that interview on Sunday sequence and thinking the gospel triumphed in that situation over and against that false doctrine of baptismal regeneration. One thinks of social media. It cannot be right that Christians attack each other on a public platform before an unbelieving world. Al Mohler is uh, president of Southern Baptist Convention, and I, he, uh, in a podcast, was answering a, a question 
about who raised Christ from the dead, from a 10-year-old. And he said, the Father raised Christ from the dead. Well, we know that the Trinity was involved in the resurrection because Jesus said, I have the power to lay down my life and take it up again. But then all this criticism appeared on social media against this great scholar and this great man. And to be honest, it was like a pygmy standing on the foot of a giant, giving the world reason to scorn the gospel. Or one thinks of the whole issue with whether or not you should attend homosexual weddings. Now, my position is absolutely clear. I don't think you should because you give approval to that wedding. But the vicious reaction that has been provoked over that controversy in social media gives the world reason to scorn and criticize and to ruin the reputation of a good, faithful man. We need to be so careful what we say. We need to be careful what we say about other Christians on social media. That's the principle that's being brought out here. I made that mistake. I hope I haven't done it since, but there was somebody I know quite well, and they put up a little post about, let's put uh, Christ back into Xmas. And I simply made the point that the Greek letter chi, which is translated C-H, is the X shape in Greek. So it's not necessarily wrong to write Xmas if you remember that it's the letter chi that you're writing. And when we were taking a dictation in college, instead of writing Christ, we just wrote X. We put a cross because of chi, the Greek letter chi. And all these people waded in, and the temperature of the discussion rose higher and higher. And eventually I said, no more, no more. That can't be right. That's the very issue that Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians 6, that you don't parade your divisions before an unbelieving world. We need to be circumspect. We need to be careful. That's the first reason, the testimony of the gospel. The second is the relationship between Christians. Look at that word brothers in verse 6. But brother goes to law against brother. Now, that word brother is crucial. When God says He reconciles us not only to Himself, but to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are brought into a fraternal relationship with one another. We are adopted into God's family, which brings us into a relationship with each other. And it's scandalous, says Paul, that as brothers in Christ, you use non-Christian family members to adjudicate on those cases. My father used to say, keep it in the family. Don't wash your dirty laundry in public. What did Jesus say? By this, we sang it earlier, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. He's speaking about the evangelistic effect of believers loving one another. What were these ungodly adjudicators, judges, jurors, and spectators to think of two Christians coming brothers in Christ, uh, criticizing each other before them? It was incongruous that one Christian should criticize another Christian in this way. Did Jesus not say, love one another as I have loved you? And Peter reminds us that love covers a multitude of sins. 
If a person says that he is a Christian and does not love, he is deluding himself. And it's not enough to verbalize that love, to say, I love you. We have to demonstrate that love. We have to show that love publicly. Love is practical. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice over wrong, but rejoices over what is right. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. You see, Christian love demands, demands that we sort out our differences with each other and not before the world. That's the second reason why this kind of litigation was wrong, because of the relationship between Christians. When tempted to dismiss another believer on Facebook or anything else, remember, remember that person is a blood brother. They have been bought with the same blood that purchased you. The reason explained, the testimony of the gospel, the relationship between Christians, and then the sin that is provoked. If you go down to verse 8, we see how this kind of litigation was having an effect upon the participants. But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. There's that word brother again. And this litigation, it seems, was provoking ungodly, unchristian behavior among the Corinthians. I don't know if you followed the uh, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial or the uh, Wagatha trial between Rebecca Vardy and Colleen Rooney. It just got farcical. And the more they went into it, the more mud they, they slung. And that's what the law is like. When two people meet in court, they can go to extraordinary lengths to win their case. It can bring out the worst in people. And this, it seems, was what was happening in Corinth. They defrauded and they did wrong, verse 8. The word wrong there means to be unjust. It means they went beyond what they were entitled to. It wasn't justice at all. That great verse in Micah 6 and verse 8, He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. This was the sin, particularly the minor prophets, repeatedly criticized Israel and Judah for injustice. Now, what Paul is saying here is that this kind of litigation leads to a lack of justice. It, it brings out the worst in people. A spirit of greed overtakes. And the other word there is defraud or cheat in the NIV. It means to swindle. A spirit of greed comes over the person, and they want to get their pound of flesh. And you see, when you enter into that kind of litigation or that kind of discussion on social media, it's very hard then to step down from your high horse because everybody wants to have the last word. Everybody wants to win, and that leads to destruction and to a breach of fellowship between believers, says Simon Kistemacher in his commentary. When individuals attack each other, the unity of the body disintegrates. So this is a serious business because the very existence of the church 
is at stake, the sin that it provokes, the reason explained, the testimony of the gospel. Why should you not do this? The testimony of the gospel, the relationship between Christians, the sin that is provoked, the problem exposed, the reason explained. And then thirdly, the principle established. In these verses, Paul establishes a very important principle for the church. Look at verses 4 and 5. Now, verse 4, if you're using the 1984 edition of the NIV, it sort of gives the impression that the, he's talking about people inside the church rather than outside. But the new 2011 NIV and most modern versions take it as people outside the church. So, the ESV reads like this, verse 4, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Paul is establishing the principle that the church, with the resources that God has given it, is sufficient for dealing with its own problems that in the church we have all that is necessary to sort out the difficulty between church members. The Corinthians ought to have appointed wise and capable men of their own community to settle these trivial cases among the members. Now, Paul hammers this home in the most extraordinary way with a powerful illustration. He says in verses 2 and 3, that Christians will be called on to judge the world and to judge angels. Look at verse 2. Or do you not know that saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Paul says, that a day is coming when Christians will be involved in judging the world. Now, I think we are to take judge in the Hebraic sense. If you've been with us in our studies in the Old Testament on a Tuesday night, you'll know that a judge wasn't just simply an adjudicator, a judge in Israel, but he was a, like a mini-king, one who ruled in Israel. Now, Paul says that in the world to come, Christians will be involved in that judgment. They will rule and they will adjudicate. Now, this is not something that Paul has dreamed up on his own, but it's repeated, a repeated emphasis in Scripture. Jesus on one occasion said to his disciples in Matthew 19, 28, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In Jude 14 and 15, see, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands, His elect that have previously died. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of His holy ones to judge everyone and convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly acts. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12, if we endure with Him, we will also reign with Him. So, in the coming judgment, we as Christians will be involved in that judgment. We will reign with Christ. But that's not where it ends. He says in verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels how much more than matters pertaining to this life? 
In the order of redemption, the believer, the redeemed, comes above even the angels. Although they give their energies to the worship of heaven, we're told as far as redemption is concerned that angels love to look into these things, that redemption is beyond their comprehension. And in the world to come, believers will exercise authority even over the angelic hosts of heaven. Now, some interpret angels here to mean fallen angels, and Paul is referring to devils and demons. And I'm not sure he's doing that in an exclusive way. I think it includes devils and demons, but also this ruling, ruling and reigning over the world to come. Isn't this staggering? The devil who has tempted us, distressed us, condemned us, discouraged us. One day, as believers, we will sit in judgment over him. The angelic hosts of heaven who sing continually and powerfully, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who immediately spring into action to execute the will of God. One day, we will rule over them. Isn't that a staggering thought? Now, you see, Paul's logic here. If that is our destiny as God's people to rule over the angelic hosts of heaven and to sit in judgment of the world, are we not qualified to judge trivial cases? He says, if you are going to judge in the world to come, are you not competent to judge in this world? That's a a staggering thought. Now, of course, Christians are frightened of this. They remember the words of Jesus, judge not lest ye be judged. And they say, we as a church must not make moral or spiritual judgments. But Jesus is speaking to a self-righteous, unrepentant hypocrisy. We are to judge. The Lord has called us to be fruit inspectors, to make judgments. And Paul is saying that within each local church lies the resources to exercise and administer those judgments. Notice Paul is speaking of the church locally, the church in Corinth. He doesn't advise them to go to an outside body. He doesn't advise them to take it to presbytery. He doesn't advise them to take it to a bishop. He says, you, you as a local church, you have all the resources that are necessary to deal with this issue. So, the principles established here are very simple, that Christians ought not to go to law against another Christian to settle church matters. And secondly, that the church has the resources within itself to sort out its difficulties and to pass judgment. Each independent local church has been gifted by the Holy Spirit, by the risen Christ, to sort out with the resources to sort out the trouble and difficulties between members. And I think that's an important principle, that we as a church, we we have the resources to deal with those issues. The problem exposed, the reason explained, the principle established, and the sacrifice expected. I want in conclusion just for you to notice verse 7. Paul says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not 
be defrauded. Paul is saying that when it comes to these disputes between Christians, even if the judge rules in favor of the plaintiff, the whole effect of the court case is detrimental to the church and to its testimony. The demonstration of the lack of love and the parading of hostility before a pagan world is a defeat for the church of Jesus Christ. Great damage has been done by this kind of public hostility. Notice Paul goes further, and he says in verse 7, why not suffer wrong? Rather, uh, why not be defrauded? He is saying it is better to lose financially than to lose spiritually, better to lose your face than your testimony. Even when we're clearly in the right, we should not demand our rights before a pagan world. Do you see the principle? We ought to make personal sacrifices for the sake of the testimony of the church. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if he strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if he would take your coat, give him your cloak. There ought to be in the heart of every believer this willingness to endure insult, because that's what striking on the cheek meant. There ought to be this willingness to endure insult for the sake of the gospel. Money, we had an elder in, in the church, and his next-door neighbor put up a pigeon coop. And his wife was really annoyed because they, when she hung out her washing, the pigeons pooped from the coop. And, uh, but she got, she got them to know, you know, when the birds were out and when they were in, and she could arrange her laundry around that particular thing. But she was so angry. She was so angry that she wanted to go to the council and report it. And Jack, the elder in the church, said, a bit of pigeon poop for the gospel and for the testimony of Christ. Now, they were perfectly in their rights to complain to the council, but they absorbed that hurt and that feeling for the sake of the gospel. The church is to operate in an atmosphere of love and grace and must be prepared to absorb personal hurts rather than bring the gospel into disrepute. Says John MacArthur, a Christian's primary concern should not be to protect his rights, but to protect his relationship with his Lord and his fellow believers. We have got to be so careful when it comes to parading our differences before unbelievers and fueling their reasons why they don't believe. And I, I think that's even true before people who come to church. You know, one of the things that has disturbed me down through the years is around the dinner table on Sunday that parents will criticize the pastor and the church in front of their un unbelieving children. Do you honestly think that helps them? Do you honestly think that points them to Christ and shows them something of the loveliness of Christ? I think not. We've got to be circumspect. We've got to be careful when it comes to these things. That was the issue in Corinth, that they were parading their differences in these courts before an unbelieving world. 
And that ought not to happen as a Christian and as a church. We ought to be circumspect when it comes to our relationships with each other. So when somebody puts up a a crazy comment on Facebook, even a member of the church, restrain yourself. Hold back. Because at the end of the day, it's the world that benefits, not the gospel of God. Amen.